This is Let Your Voice Be Heard right here on WHCR 90.3 FM, the voice of Harlem. Shout out to everyone who is watching us via Ustream and leaving some comments. The stream team, by the way, 46 red underscore live. I am good. How are you? Yes, we are doing very well. We appreciate the comments. Um, and, you know, shout out to everyone who's been calling in. Again, guys, if you want to let your voice be heard, the number is 212-650-6903. Yes, and you can also tweet us at BeHeard. Underscore. Radio. I actually Word. have the Twitter up on my computer, so we're oh, okay. definitely taking tweets now. All right, guys. And then later on in the show, we're going to have a very special guest, our dreamer and doer of the month who just walked in. With an adorable child. Oh, I know. Small That's person. her daughter. We love small children. No, I do. I love love babies so yes she's not a baby she's a whole like, <laughs> i know right child. she's, she's kind of older than a baby i see that though yes but, all right guys. you're a grown woman right not yet she's like nah chill i ain't trying to pay no bills yet i'm not with yet. you i'm with you i see you all right guys so um before we get to that we're actually gonna be talking about again um brown versus uh, ed Brown versus Board of Ed, yeah, and also school segregation. So, sixty-two years ago, the Supreme Court landmark ruling in Brown versus Board of Ed desegregated schools, declaring that separate is not equal. However, desegregation never really occurred in public schools in Cleveland, Mississippi. It actually took federal intervention for the Cleveland School District, which is a part of the uh, Bolivar County, by the way, to fully accept and embrace the concept of integrated schools. So, again, Cleveland is a is a Mississippi Delta town with a population of about 12,000. However, the district is split by old Illinois railroad, tra- um, railroad tracks <laughs> that separate those on the east and those on the west. So residents on the east are black and attend the east side high school, while residents on the on the west are white. So before 1969, the schools on the west side of the railroad tracks were white and segregated by law. And then schools on the east side, again, were originally black. But in 1965, right, uh, lawyers filed a lawsuit on behalf of 131 school children accusing the Bolivar County Board of Education and some of its members of operating public schools in a racially segregated bias. No. No way, right? Mississippi. Yes. This 1965. What? Mississippi this can't be is happening. known as the most tolerant place in the world. And Mississippi also has the schools that are in last. 50th. 50th in the state. Yeah, I mean, they're doing a lot of things wrong. They got some good schooling going on over there. Huh? Obviously not. Followed only behind by, I don't know, third world country. <laughs> <laughs> well, th- thank you for that, Alyssa. So, so, but, but get this. <laughs> so this legal case went on for decades. Then in 2011, the Justice Department filed a motion illustrating the inequalities between the poor and the well-off in Cleveland. So they're like, look, there's some things going down that needs to be fixed that needs to be changed. But it wasn't until last week when a federal judge ordered the Cleveland School District to consolidate its schools entirely. So U.S. Uh, District Judge Deborah Brown, she determined that after 51 years of litigation, three desegregation plans, the problems remained in Cleveland, Mississippi. And she said that only by dismantling and reforming the schools can this town bring the two sides together. That means that the middle school and the high schools in Cle- in the Cleveland School District um, will be combined after decades of resistance. No, I was just thinking about something similar happening in New York, but we'll get to that later. Oh, you know, we're, we're definitely going to talk about New York. Um, and I also want to read this quote um, that came out of the U.S. District Court for Northern uh, Dist- for the Northern District of Mississippi. So they said the delay in desegregation has deprived generations of students of the constitutionally guaranteed right of integrated 
education. So this is a victory, right, in Mississippi and in Cleveland. But a new report by the Government Accountability Office which dropped on the anniversary of Brown versus Board of Ed, shows that segregation is returning to schools across the nation. Or never left. Yeah. <laughs> right? Yeah. Returning? Being, uh, schools, never left. Schools are being resegregated. Um, New York is the most segregated state for schools in the U.S. No, no, we are definitely going to get there. to those. Sorry, we're we're going to get to the statistics. We're going to bring it to New York. We definitely are. So the report shows that... Um, 16% of public schools that high that had high proportions of poor and black or latino hispanic uh, students in the 2013 to 2014 school year um so yeah so so that that portion actually doubled and it said about 75 to 100% of those specific students were eligible for free or reduced price lunches now that is a common indicator of poverty so basically what they're saying is um the these schools that are predominant are that are um where the students are predominantly black and hispanic they're also poor or using or have to uh, being forced to use free lunch or reduced price lunches and these schools off- also offer fewer math science and college preparatory courses and have higher rates of students being held back in ninth grade, suspended or expelled. So again, separate is definitely not equal, especially when it comes to black and brown schools. So even though um, that, even though we were talking about uh, Mississippi, Stanley kept bringing it to New York. And you know, I want to drop some statistics here because you're absolutely right. So um, when it comes to having the most segregated schools, New York is top. Um, New York, we have. No, not when it comes to segregation. We, we are obviously the best at segregation. What are you talking <laughs> we're about? Number we're one. We're number one. So we do something right. Get out of here, Tyrone. This is this is Noah's college. It's all right. You know what Stanley wanted to name this segment? What? Segregation forever. Right. Yes. Segregation t- today, tomorrow, and forever. No, but we're going to change it. We're going to change it. So in New York, um, we're almost two-thirds of black students attend schools with um, 90% non-white um, students. You have Illinois, where three in five black students are are in extremely segregated schools. And in Maryland, 54% of black students go to heavily segregated schools. So, again, where it's New York, Illinois, Maryland, and other states across the nation where um, students are going to heavily uh, segregated schools. So basically, you know, based on these statistics, I know, Stanley, you did a lot of work in education reform. I just want to get your reaction to the statistics and to this report that strategically dropped on the anniversary of Brown versus Ed. Well, there's nothing surprising about this. In New York in particular, there's a school in um, Bush, Bushwick, Williamsburgish, where um, there was a lot of like a lot of like well to do a white family sending their kids there. And because of some redistricting that happened, they they had come to find out that now some of the kids from a school in a poorer t- part of that area were going to be going into their school. The parents protested, wrote letters, got the media involved to try and stop these children of color. And they said, listen, we don't care if they're black or Latino. It's that they're not as well behaved as our kids and they don't do as well. They're going to bring our kids down. This is New York liberal bastion Bushwick Park Slope area. Just to give the, the contrast to that, in that same note, mm-hmm. there was also parents of students of color that protested them joining the white students because they felt it would make it more difficult for their students to compete with these students that they felt had for years been getting better education to that student. So there was pushback on both sides of that. But but you're right, you know, in the the 
penultimate sense about the the issue from a bigger picture angle. Selena, may I? Yes. Yeah, sure. So real quick, guys, if you're listening, the, num- the number is 212-650-6903. And I just want to point out in New York State, we had what we had found out a couple of years ago from a lawsuit that Robert Jackson filed is that the state had been underfunding low-income schools for years. And they owe the Board of Education, in particular for these poor schools, $4.8 billion in back funds that they still have not paid and what you also know is that these schools where you have a high volume of um, black and Latino kids they're usually underfunded no that is absolutely right uh, Alyssa did you want to respond yeah no no no. I just wanted to actually go back for a second and, and talk about some of the history like leading up to Brown versus Board of Ed um, so I mean this really actually it's crazy to think that it's 2016 and that this goes back to 1896 so if you don't know what I'm talking about in 1896 is when the Supreme Court ruled in Plessy versus Ferguson that upheld the constitutionality of states that required racial segregation in public facilities not just in schools in all public facilities under the doctrine of separate but equal. Mm -hmm. Essentially, what the court ruled in Plessy was that um, if facilities were equal, they could be separate, and that did not violate the Constitution. In 1954, in the Brown case, was the, the, the case that actually overruled Plessy versus Ferguson, and the first time the court ever said that separate was inherently unequal, right? And yet, still today, and, and actually, another thing a lot of people don't know, there actually had to be a second Brown versus Board of Education case that went back up to the Supreme Court two years later in 56. Why? Because a lot of schools were not complying with desegregation. And so because they were not complying, there was a second Brown versus Board case brought to the Supreme Court where the Supreme Court basically went back to the states and told them, if you do not comply with this law, you are going to be violating the Constitution and the federal government is going to come after you and they are going to sue you for constitutional violations. And that's exactly what we're seeing right now when we look at the situation in Mississippi. The federal government actually sued the state of Mississippi and this specific school district, actually, and they argued that under the second Brown versus board rubric, the school was not complying. Why? They had two middle schools and two high schools, and one of the middle schools and one of the high schools was predominantly white, and the other was predominantly black, and they tried to say in this community, in this this district that, oh, well, it was just about where people lived and, you know, where the district lines were. And, and, and the federal government was like, no. And the court said no. And they said, you know what? We're not putting up with this anymore. You need to integrate these schools. That was almost more of a de jure segregation. A lot of what we see here in New York is a de facto segregation. And so the question now isn't how do we deal with de jure segregation? The question is how do we deal with de facto segregation that isn't encoded into law, but that we know still is existing? Right. And Alyssa, that actually brings me to another question that I wanted to talk about because, you know, we're seeing the segregation. We have the facts, the statistics. We know what's going on. But there are a lot of outside factors that contribute to um, the lack of integration in schools. Like you have school board decisions, you have political opposition, you have discriminatory housing policies. And I wanted to bring it right there um, and definitely throw it at Stanley because how do some of these outside factors contribute to the schools being so segregated? Well, it's pretty simple. It's redlining. And especially in places like New York where you had um, the elected officials out in Long Island, Robert Moses, who was like, investing in certain land and like developing certain areas with the full intent and purpose of blocking out people of color where you had when black families started to move to East New York and to Brownsville they had the white flight, white flight. And, and real estate agents were pushing to get white people out of there and because there weren't any jobs already and that property value plummets those property taxes go towards funding the schools and now you see gentrification 
and we'll, we'll yes at yes you get to that but like before that happens you have pretty much these communities these entire communities who are depleted of jobs of tax funding and then they'll use that money to fund these schools and then what the state does because they don't really care they don't put enough money behind these schools to help them recover and and the whole goal of it is to pretty much just max out that community until it gets to the lowest point and let private entities come in and, mm. and quote unquote rebuild it, which is why you see this huge wave of charter schools. And some of them are well-intentioned because charter schools theoretically are public schools, but a lot of them are just looking for a business model to help to kind of influence the new wave of young leaders in a way that they, f- they see fit. And then also monetize the education system through standardized testing, so on and so forth. So glad you brought up charter schools mm-hmm. because the report actually found that not all the race segregated schools are public. Most are, but the report says that um, there are a share of charter mag- and magnet schools mm-hmm. that are qualifying as racially and economically isolated yes. when it comes to um, so, so when it comes to segregation. So, I mean, you've also worked for an organization that dealt with a lot of charter schools. Did you see a lot of um, racial segregation there as well? Or so, how does that how does that come so into play? So the way it works, we'll use Brownsville. Brownsville, the area that I grew up in, Brownsville on um, Rockaway Avenue, you have Riverdale Towers where I lived. You had Tilden Houses where I lived. Marcus Garvey and all those places. And there were about six schools there. Out of those six schools, all six schools were failing schools for over 20 years. When you have that kind of climate, there's really nothing. You're pretty much cutting off someone's chances of making out of poverty. So these charter schools see that. They see Brownsville, which has low property taxes, and they come there because you you get a charter. They, they call it charter schools because you get a charter from the Board of Ed to kind of like create your own formula for a school. And they give you a certain timeline that you have to like see success or they revoke your charter. So like they'll get these charters. They'll get these spaces where they don't have to pay any taxes on, they don't have to pay any rents on, and they'll implement their own programs, right? Mm -hmm. So once they start doing that now, the question is, how do we monetize this? The way you monetize it is with the testing, is with the uniforms, or with the school supplies, because charter schools don't have to go through the same payment system that a regular Board of Ed school does. It gives you more freedom. So... They start making money in that way, and of course it makes more sense to keep low-income kids of color in these schools because, A, it looks great when you're saying, look, I saved Tyrone's life, Mm. and I I saved Maria's life. So, like, it helps to keep that system of helping the poor. And also, when people come after you because they see what you're doing, it's very easy to deflect and say, you just don't want children of color to have the same opportunities. You don't see charter schools in these rich white, sco- rich white districts. Yeah, why you don't that? need them. Right. Because, mm. like, they're targeting a certain demographic, and right. a lot of these people, like, don't really know what's going on. They just want their kids to have a good education. And in some ways they do, but then they have a lot of problematic practices, like coaching kids out, like mm. not having any support for kids who have special needs, like over suspensions, like right. just an troubling level of discipline but this is the new system right so that's that's the, i mean charter schools you can have some good ones but there are a lot of problematic issues with the system in general and they target on poor black families who have been segregated out of good schools and are too poor to pay for, for private schools right no thank you so much for just giving that breakdown stanley you're absolutely right and i think that it's it's troubling that we see segregation in public schools from kindergarten all the way up to 12th grade and it's getting worse and it's getting worse very quickly um accordingly we we apparently have about 20 million students of color now attending racially and socially economically isolated public schools. So race is a huge factor, but as Stanley brought up, so is class, so is money, so is the fact that you, if you can't afford to live in a better um, a district, in a better housing district, then you're going to be, um, obviously you're going to have to go to your, your um, the district school, and yeah. if it's not being properly resourced, resourced and funded, then you're going to have some problems there. But on that note, we do have to take a quick break but we will continue this discussion right here on let your voice be heard
WHCR 90.3. We oh. are back. This is let your voice be heard. real, don't you know? You no, it's, it's, if they can watch, if they see on Ustream, you can tell. This is definitely costume jewelry. No shame Word. in my game. And also, um, we all get a chain, a gold chain, when we join Let Your Voice Be Heard, like Rockefeller records you should do. That actually does not happen here. <laughs> but we are back. This is WHCR 90.3. I found the voice of Harlem, and we're having a conversation about segregation in schools. We talked about uh, Cleveland, Missouri, uh, Mississippi, where federal the federal government had to intervene in order to desegregate that school district but then we brought it to new york and stanley gave an excellent breakdown about how the schools are just as segregated here and because a lot of times black and brown parents um are are forced to send their children to bad schools which aren't being funded right which don't have good teachers don't have good resources they will choose to put their children in charter schools and it just so happens that we have a very special guest in the building, our dreamer and doer, Melody Centeno. Did I say that right? Centeno. 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 She's here, and she's also the parent of a child in a charter school. So I definitely want to get your take on that because your, your child does go. I don't know if she ever went to public schools and then you transfer her or if she's always been in charter schools. She's always been in charter what, schools. What's your experience been? You know what? You know, and from a social work perspective, you got to understand charter schools um, were at least this particular charter school um, that my daughter goes to, is very, is very fortress-like. So you have uh, schools where the community is really involved, the parent engagement is very high, but in this particular educational um, setting, is very fortress-like. It's kind of like, leave your child at the door, we'll handle everything else, <laughs> you know? And so that can be problematic for me because, you know, sometimes I don't really understand what's going on in the classroom, and you really have to put your trust in the teachers. But it shouldn't be about that. It should be about transparency and communication across the board. Do, so, go ahead. Do you think that she has more your child your daughter has more opportunities because she's in a charter school versus a public school i know you guys live in brooklyn do you think it would have been worse for her if she was going to a public school in brooklyn i think that that all depends on the area you know stanley brought up a good point about you know being from bed-stuy and and what the the schools were like in that particular area the area in brooklyn that i lived in the school that she would have been um attending if we didn't select charter uh, school for her was not a bad school per se in terms of the teaching structure. The behavioral issues, on the other hand, is really what what made me want to consider going to a charter route. Um, but but yeah, I think that I think it's all about balance, and I think it's all about who the parent is right. attached to the child because you know I I know what's going on in my child's life because I'm very aggressive with mm-hmm. the teachers. I'm very aggressive with what's going on in the classroom, and because of that, you know they they're very careful with how they treat my my daughter. But overall, you know this particular setting for her is is what I feel is in the best in, in the best um, her yeah, best interest. In her best interest, right? Yeah, no, I actually, I had a comment about, uh, just about the, the issue of school segregation in general and the bigger picture, which is maybe, I mean, I'm very cynical have, doing civil rights work, mm-hmm. but I feel like there's something way more nefarious actually going on, which is this idea where, you know, like, look at the prison population, right? The prison population is 98% black and Hispanic. And so I see this nefarious thing going on of keeping people segregated in lower performing schools because undereducated people are easier to control and they're easier to, to imprison. 
And when you have a situation where you have power structures that we have talked about in this country that are based on that are based going back to, to slavery, to Jim Crow, you know, to the civil rights movement on on the control and enslavement of a group of people, then you have a nefarious motive to want to keep them undereducated so that they can be imprisoned. No, Alyssa is absolutely right. And what she's referring to is the school to prison pipeline, which works by alienating black and brown students from the school system and making it more likely for them to drop out and then end up in prison. We actually did a show not too long ago where we talked about the school to prison pipeline. And one of the things I want to make note of was that when it comes to girls of color, like Melody's daughter, um, especially black girls, they face much harsher school discipline than white peers. And they're excluded from um, efforts when it comes to uh, school to prison pipeline. So basically when it comes to um, efforts to address the school to prison pipeline. So basically, um, if you're a black child, especially if you're a black girl, more likely you're going to be suspended. More than likely you're going to be expelled. More than likely instead of getting, you know, a slap on the wrist in some instances, let's say you come late for class. There's some state, there's some schools in Texas where if you continually come late to class, you get a citation. And if you don't play that citation, you can end up in jail. And that has happened to students of color. So, again, the school to prison pipeline definitely comes into play when we talk about school segregation because most of the students that are going from school to, to prison are in these segregated schools. So let's hammer down on those numbers just, just a little bit more. So we're talking about people of color, particularly black girls and black boys. Let's focus on black girls. Seven times more likely to be, to be suspended. Three times more likely to have a teacher who does not have all of their certifications. Five times more likely, pardon me, to be put into a special needs class, even though they don't need that. And they could just easily be, di- be diagnosed with something like ADD, which we have medication for. Or ten times more likely to be overdiagnosed for illnesses that they don't have, like attention deficit disorder, um, autism, et cetera, et cetera. Selena? Also, let's all remember that student, that young black girl who was in a classroom who was body slammed. She was choke slammed. Thank you very choke much. Choke slammed. And in the rock by, bottom. Right. He was, she was choke slammed in her desk by a school safety officer. Right? And then she was expelled. Like, we did this story a few months ago, but this is something that's continually happening to black and brown students, especially black girls. I mean, and it's not just the school-to-prison pipeline. There's also a a school-to-prison pipeline that's sort of outside of those numbers, which is how many black and brown students drop out of school because of the conditions they face in school and end up in the school-to-prison pipeline in that respect. And Mm -hmm. then you also have this issue, you talked about the citations and not being able to pay it, which is you can't just deal with school segregation. You also have to deal with the issue of poverty. You also, And that goes back to the issue of reparations that you talked about with Larry Elder, which, by the way, won an award, if you didn't know. So you should definitely check that show out Bars. on our website. <laughs> <laughs> no, no, you guys are absolutely right. Still, did you want to add on? Uh, yeah, I did want to add on, actually, because one of the biggest arguments right now going on in the educational reform space, um, and you have certain groups who are blaming it on the teachers. And while it's true that we, we have a lack of... There's a, there's a weakness in quality teachers and communities of color. The biggest issue is all these issues we're talking about where poverty, you're redlining districts, you're not giving them the proper resources, and you're segregating them purposely so that they are not put in a position where they can actually win. And I want to point out in relation to school segregation that one of the reasons segregation has picked up since Brown, Brown versus Board of Education, when LBJ left office and then we had Richard Nixon in office, one of the things that he did was appoint Supreme Court justices who would not be as aggressive as voting in favor of 
of cases like Brown v. Board of Education after Nixon. You had Carter, who was there for a very short period of time, and then you had Reagan for eight years, then Bush for four years. And they put injustices, and they had policies that did not push to force places places to desegregate. So when you have people at the top not caring about these issues, this is what happens. Right. And now you're seeing also, and when you are seeing a push to try and, segre- and, and to desegregate the schools, and you know, one of the things, like here's an example in New York um, that was written about in the New York Times just this week, about there's a school in East Harlem that was predominantly a school that was mostly black and brown, and now in an effort to try and s- to desegregate some of the schools, they're now bringing in some white students from, I believe it's the Upper West Side, they're now being bussed into the school. But now a lot of the parents of the minority students are complaining that because of that, now this new principal that's coming in is, is sort of changing the curriculum in, in order to better meet the needs of some of the whiter students that are coming in from the Upper West Side and the demands that their parents are saying, you know, we want these types of programs. And that's pissing off a lot of the black and brown parents who are saying, like, the whole reason why we wanted to send our kids here is because it was less structured and there was more focus on art and music and a lot of those kinds of things and, and less focus on structure of having to pass a test. So that's now also becoming an issue when you've waited so long to try and desegregate some of these schools and you try and do it. Now you're getting pushback from both sides. No, that's an excellent point. And I think that the um, the, the parents here in East Harlem, um, they have a right to be outraged because this school was teaching their children and not using traditional mechanisms and means. Like they were, you know, very hands-on. They used a lot of arts and crafts and culture. Um, but I, I think that now that they have this new principal who's trying to meet traditional public school standards here in New York City, it's definitely a conflict of interest. Um, really quickly before we wrap up. They're being Columbus. Of course they're pissed off. <laughs> their communities were crap and no one cared about it at all until Noah moved into the block. And now all of a sudden, they're getting all kinds of upgrades. They're getting arrested at higher rates because Noah was afraid to walk down the street. And now their school's being taken over. I'd be pissed off too. Well... On that note, we do need to um, start wrapping this conversation up. But before we do, I want to talk about how we can achieve student equity and get you guys final thoughts on just achieving student equity for our students. Well, we have to relook at the way that we like we fund education schools and we have to look at the way that we pay teachers. You pay teachers crap. You're not going to get the top quality people going into be teachers. And if you don't get proper funding to schools and don't consider the fact that we're living in these really poor neighborhoods and you have you have serious income inequality, you're always going to have problems in the education system. Alyssa? Yeah, no, I would agree with that. But I also think, as I said earlier, that we need to address some of the more uh, some of the core issues along with just dealing with school segregation, Uh, you know, issues about poverty, about reducing our prison population. I say often that a lot of times one issue is related to a lot of other issues and we can't just look at one issue in isolation. We need to look at all the factors that contribute to it. So I think this is definitely one of those situations. And I think we need to do a better job at realizing that it is one of those situations and that we're never going to solve this problem if we don't focus on the bigger picture. No, you're absolutely right. And I just want to piggyback and add on really quickly that um, we definitely need to demand when it comes to low income and minority students, we need to demand that they have access to resource integrated learning environments. And we need to make sure that our teachers definitely are meeting their needs. There are a number of things wrong with the system in general, but it all interconnects in some way when it comes to um, poverty, when it comes to, again, the school to prison pipeline, which we touched on today. And when it comes to just lack of resources in these communities, one of the most vulnerable demographics that are affected are our children. 
happen. And these are the people that are our tomorrow, that are going to run for office, and that are going to run our society. So I think that when we don't pay enough attention and we're not advocating enough for our children, these are the effects that hurt us all as a society. So that's why it's so important for us to make sure that we stay on top of this movement and we advocate and speak out for our children. On that note, we do have to take a quick break. But when we come back, we're going straight into the Dreamer and Doer series right here on Let Your Voice Be Heard. I'm like, hey, what's up, hello, since you're pretty, pretty, soon as you came in the door. 